ask you to bow with me in a word of prayer to ask the Lord's blessing. Father, we come before you yet again, thankful that we can over and over and over come before you in prayer and come before your word. And indeed, Lord, we know that you are ever present with us. And for that, we rejoice and thank you. And we thank you for the testimony of your word as we've been going through uh, the book of Acts. And we ask, Lord, that as we uh, continue now in the second to last chapter of Luke's account, that you would bless the, the hearing of your word and the preaching of your word and enable your saints to grow and to be strengthened in their faith, uh, that we might take that strength that you give and that resolve uh, to further your kingdom, to demonstrate before the world the glory of your name, the power of the gospel, and the reign of Jesus Christ. And we ask you to do this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So you can take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 27. Uh, last week, we uh, saw the conclusion to Paul's trial in Caesarea and the granting of his request to go before Caesar and the trial that he had and the opportunity to testify about Christ before King Agrippa. And so our passage this morning, Luke is giving us a, a pretty harrowing account of a shipwreck of the boat which Paul ultimately was placed on and was meant to transport him to Italy so that he might come before uh, Caesar in Rome. And so it's a fairly detailed account. It's really a magnificent, um, a magnificent display of writing and skill. And, and it does give you the sense that, as, as we'll see as we go through the passage, um, of the one who's writing it is actually there, right? The one who is writing it is actually there. And so uh, let us hear the reading of God's word. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, the next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salomon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fairhaven, near which was the city of Lassia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because of uh, even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, 
I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there and the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fast, then fearing that they would run aground on the Cirrus, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, and as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms a little farther, and they took a sounding and again found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks and they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for the day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will, be, it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were all, in all, 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. 
Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest they should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Amen. What an awesome, what an awesome, awesome account. Why is it there? Why is it there? And how does it fit in with Luke's purpose? That's always uh, the first thing I ask myself when I study and reading any passage is why is it there and uh, what is trying to be communicated. It's possible to see in this passage, uh, which some have, an emphasis on Paul's leadership um, as Luke is looking at Paul and his life and he's, he's looking at this account and he's, he's seeing Paul rising as a leader as God has called him to be and that he's highlighting Paul's decisive decision-making, and, and Luke is highlighting by this story Paul's confidence in the decision he's making, his ability to garner the confidence and the trust of others to lead them, and in Paul's ability to encourage and strengthen others to trust in God during difficult times. And, and in one sense, those, all those things are there, and they're all true, and Paul did do those things. Um, some might also see in this account, and some have, that it's kind of an allegory, an allegory of how to deal with the storms uh, in the Christian life that people will inevitably face, and to glean insight from how Paul responded to this storm. And so you might look at this account that Luke gives, and you could see the guiding principles in Paul's life that brought him through the trial. You can look at the account and see how he trusted in God's word and, and you can see his conviction that God was with him. You could see his belief that God had a plan that he was going to carry out and, and that Paul depended on God through all of it. Uh, certainly in this passage, all those things are referenced as well. Those things are all true and and they're all there as Luke gives us the account of this shipwreck. But as I was looking at this and wanting to go through uh, the, the passage and really kind of get a sense of what I, I think Luke is trying to show us here in the account, um, I had to be reminded of the main emphasis through Acts. Once again, we've, we've said it repeatedly, but it bears repeating again, which is 
the main point that Luke has been driving home through Acts is how God worked to advance the kingdom of his son by the power of the Holy Spirit through the labors of his children. I mean, that's really what Acts is about. It's God working, Christ working to expand and to grow his kingdom by his word, by the power of the Spirit, through his disciples. That's what Luke's communicating to us, and he's showing us how this took place. And, and the thing is, is in this account, he brings up, in chapter 9, he introduces us to the Apostle Paul. And he introduces us to Paul because Paul was ultimately chosen by God as an instrument to that end. So Paul, he puts before us, not for the sake of Paul, but in order that we might marvel at God's divine determination to fulfill his plan despite opposition and suffering through Paul. So, so this, is, this is a book that is about God working, and Paul is that instrument by which God puts himself on display. And so Luke has shown us repeatedly in Acts that whenever circumstances seemed from a worldly perspective to be insurmountable for Paul, God was at work opening the doors, preparing the way for his word to move forward in victory. Haven't we seen that over and over and over again? And so I think this account is ultimately about that, about God overcoming for his people, for Paul, an obstacle that was laid before him and to bring them safely through. Now, why do I say that? Well, I don't know if you notice there, at the very end of Luke's account in verse 44, Luke says, after all of this was said and done, and so it was that all were brought safely to land. Who brought them safely to land? Indeed, Paul was instrumental, used of God, but Luke is really drawing our attention to the fact that God brought them, including Paul, safely through. And so we're meant to be encouraged by this and comforted that God is ever going before us as well, beloved. He is always at the helm of our lives, and he's always completing the work that he began in us. No matter what is taking place around us, no matter what kind of opposition or trials or difficulties that we're going through, God is always at the helm, and he's always making a way for us to honor and to serve him and to do what he has called us to do. Now, I think that's, Luke is bringing this in as an account to testify to that. Now, what is interesting, uh, I thought, about this account 
is that if I were to ask you so far, what have the challenges that Luke has brought before us about Paul's life and his ministry, what have they most normally come from? What has been the primary challenge to the ministry of Paul? Where did it come from? And you would have to answer that it came from people, right? Most of the trials that Paul faced were faced from opposition from people, opposition to the gospel. Paul's confronted by slanderous opposition from his own countrymen. It led to him being chased out of certain cities by them. We've seen all this. It resulted in 40 men taking an oath to kill him, uh, making a plot to have him murdered. A human opposition led to his being imprisoned and beaten and tried before courts numerous times for crimes he didn't commit. Uh, the Roman government, it was tried to get the Roman government to turn against him and condemn him and condemn him. And all through all of it, God directed all the circumstances of Paul's life to bring him to testify before Rome. But this time, the challenge that Paul faces, where does it come from this time? It comes from nature. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Who's over nature? God is over nature. And so after God worked through all of that opposition of these men, who he's also over, exposing their plots, granting Paul favor in the eyes of Rome's leaders, delivering him from prisons, etc., he opens the door for Paul now finally, after it's all said and done, to fulfill his purpose to go to Rome. And so now he's on a ship and he's going to Rome. And what does God do? God sends a storm to shipwreck the ship that Paul is on. No one in this boat is opposed to Paul, not even Julius the centurion. He's actually quite kind to Paul, Luke says. And so why does God do that? Why doesn't God just give Paul an easy passage to Rome? I mean, hasn't Paul suffered enough? If you had never read this account and you'd never heard of Paul's ministry, you might be reading this and thinking that as well. I mean, just imagine reading through Acts and you're like, wow, again? I mean, look at what this man has faced, and now, as he's going to Rome, you would think, okay, it's going to end, it's going to be nice and smooth, he's going to arrive, and now, on the way there, there is this massive, dangerous shipwreck. And the question I asked is, why does God do that? And I think... Luke is showing how God delivered them, and I think he's also highlighting two important points here in this shipwreck about God's work through Paul. And the two points are really going to stem from 21 to 26. They're both going to come, come out of there, okay? 
but there's really two reasons that I just want to put before you this morning. There's always a reason for what God does, and we don't know all of them, but here's at least, I think, two. The first was that Luke is reminding us that it is God who continually sustained and strengthened the faith of Paul, which enabled Paul to continue in service to God among severe testing, right? This is God was behind the man Paul. That's an encouragement to me, and it should be to you, because after seeing the many things and the resolve of Paul and his faithfulness, we have to be reminded that God worked in him, and he's also working in us. And so God has been known to lead his children into situations when things seem to be going well, where it feels like our backs are suddenly up against the wall, so to speak, to remind his servants, his children, us, of his power to save and to keep their hope in him. He does that. One of the examples that came and might come to your mind is Israel being led out of Egypt, right? When Israel came out of Egypt and God delivered them, they came out of Egypt on a very high note, didn't they? They had purged the Egyptians, they were free, God had struck down the firstborn of the Egyptians, and so out there led out of Egypt by the, the pillar of fire and by the cloud. So you have in the morning and in the day, God is leading them. And then you'll see in Exodus 13 to 15 that God ultimately leads Israel to a position by the Red Sea in which they are completely trapped by nature's surroundings. They can't go forward because the army is bearing down on them and they actually have nowhere to go. And so God is testing their faith and he's going to strengthen their faith. And so Moses says in Exodus 13 to 15 that there's nowhere left to go and the people are crying to him, to Moses, as if all was lost. But Moses responded and he said, be still and trust in God. God will deliver us safely out. He, he's going to lead us safely through. And, and in fact, just so you know, Moses as well needed to be strengthened in this moment. And, and why do I say that? Because even though he is, he is the one encouraging these believers while their back's up against the wall, you'll notice in chapter 14, verse 15, that the Lord says to Moses, even after he said that, he said, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff. So there's, in one sense, God is here kind of correcting Moses. Don't cry to me any longer, Moses. Raise up your staff toward the sea, and it will open, and the people will go safely through. And so the people and Moses needed to be strengthened in their faith by the Lord. And, and we saw this, uh, Andrew mentioned to it earlier, even with the disciples when they're in the boat with Jesus. 
full day ministry, they're crossing the sea, Jesus is asleep and arises a massive storm on the sea and they start panicking and they start fearing when Jesus is in the boat with them and they cry out to him and they say, help us, O God, redeem us. And Jesus gets up and he corrects them and he says, oh, you of little faith. And then he rebukes the waves and the wind and the sea and it becomes still. And so it was a picture of Christ strengthening his people in the midst, in their faith, in the midst of, of trials in life so that they might be strong enough to move forward in obedience to him. God does that. He has a reason for his trials. And so this, this is what it, what it was for, for Paul. This is what it was for Paul. Paul, you have to remember, is still being sanctified here. Paul hadn't arrived in his life to a place of perfect trust and obedience to God. Paul is set before us by God, not as one who is perfected in faith, but as one who is being perfected through suffering. He was called to suffer, not because he was able to endure it in and of himself, but because through it, God would show himself as savior and sanctifier. And so, when Luke says in verse 20, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned, you are not to read into that 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 did not include Paul. When Luke says, after the entire account of what led up to this shipwreck, in verse 20, after all of the chaos and the storm at the sea, even after Paul told them not to go, when he says, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned, that that included Paul. That included Paul. Now, if you look at this, what led to this, let's just look at the account of what led up to this, what led up to this. So in verse 1, you'll notice that Luke has moved back to using the we. Uh, this tells us that Luke has accompanied Paul on the ship, and verse 2 tells us that Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, did as well. And so they were there in Caesarea, and they're sailing to Rome now with Paul, and they're firsthand witnesses to this trial that they're going to go through. And so they're, they're sailing to Rome, and if you had prime conditions... It would take about five weeks to get there. Uh, prime conditions uh, during the time in which they're sailing, they're far and few between because they're sailing towards the end of the, the fall season. And so in the ancient Near East, the sailing season really ended in November 11th uh, all the way till about mid-March. And so they're sailing right at the end of where you might have safe, a safe sailing. 
possibly. And we know that because when, he, when Luke says that even the feast was over, that's a feast to the Day of Atonement, which took place, if this happens, in A.D. 59 on October 5th. And so while they're already moving and they're sailing, it's already really late into the sailing season. And so the first leg of their trip uh, is aboard a cargo ship uh, from Adramatium, a sea of port of Myasia. It's about 110 miles north of Ephesus. It's a private ship. It's probably how Luke and Aristarchus were able to accompany Paul. They probably paid to get on. And so some say that maybe they even identified themselves as Paul's slaves. Whatever the case was, they were able to get on this private ship with Paul. And so it's going along all of these ports. It's going to go along these ports of Asia, and Sidon is their first stop. It's about 69 miles north of Caesarea, and it's a full day and night journey. And so this ship is under the authority of this centurion of Rome, uh, the Augustan cohort named Julius. He's in charge of the crew, the soldiers, and the, and the ship, and the prisoners. And like I said, he was kind to Paul. Um, and so he, he even permits Paul to go see his friends in Sidon. And so things are going quite well right now. Um, prisoners needed to be cared for in the first century. We didn't feed them. They didn't feed them three square meals a day. Uh, give them entertainment, and um, educate them, and, and so on. And so the Roman government didn't provide those necessities, but Julius permitted Paul to go see his friends. He trusted, he trusted Paul. And so after this layover in Sidon, they continue their journey. They're headed along the coast. They're going north of Cyprus, if you can picture the map. And they're, they're headed west, but they go north which way would that be for you? North of Cyprus, so that they're going above it and between uh, Asia. And the reason they do that is because the winds, Luke says, were strong, and so that kind of protected them. So uh, they want to sail about 500 miles away. They're headed to Myra in Lycia. And so Luke notes that they did this to be protected. So they get to Myra. And the centurion transfers them to another ship headed for Italy. And so Luke says this was a ship from Alexandria. It's going, that's from northern Egypt. It's pretty much to Myra's directly north, separated by the sea, Egypt to Myra. And so it comes from Alexandria. It's bringing wheat. It's a cargo ship. And it's going up there to Alexandria uh, because it transfers wheat for Rome from Egypt. And it's a big ship. It's about 180 feet long, 45 feet wide, and about 43 and a half feet tall. And it's a large ship. And it's at this point that Luke begins to notice the first sign of difficulty in their travels. So they're trying to port in the city of Nidius, which is now even more on the western edge of Asia, about 130 miles from Myra. And they try to get there, but they can't. And so they, Luke says that they couldn't make it because the winds were strong, so they headed toward the protection of this island Crete off Salomon's sailing. It didn't get any easier. They moved along slowly around Crete, and they eventually came to Fairhaven. Now, Fairhaven, if you look at Crete, 
it's in the middle of Crete, and there's a little peninsula that Fairhaven is, and so they sailed around Crete, and they landed in this peninsula, and it was open to the sea, so it wasn't a very good place to spend winter for them. And so it's at this point that Luke says that Paul then speaks up. And Paul looked at the situation, and really through his own experience, and even three other shipwrecks that he'd been through, he looked at the experience and he tells them, you guys, we, we shouldn't proceed. We shouldn't move forward. I don't think this is a divine revelation. I, I just think he's applying his personal experience and he's saying, um, as it says in verse 10, sirs, I perceive that the voyage, if you want to move on from Fairhaven, because they wanted to go to a phoenix on the other end of Crete, I perceive that if we voyage there, the voyage will be with injury and much loss, and not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. And so he's warning them not to proceed, not to proceed. But the centurion, Luke says, he's more persuaded by the captain of the ship. It's understandable. He respects Paul, but he defers to that wisdom. And so they're thinking it's only 40 more miles to Phoenix and we'll be protected from the winter there. And so let's try and make it. And so the wind shifts and they take off to go. And as they go, everything started to become harder and harder for sailing, as Luke says in 13, all the way to 20. They had to secure a lifeboat. They had to lower the gear. They had to throw out cargo. Things are going crazy. It all seemed hopeless. And Luke says, all of our hope of being saved was at last abandoned. So I think Paul was discouraged by that. And I think that Paul felt like now that things had taken a turn for the worse, that maybe he was in a place and in a position where God did not want him. Maybe Paul is looking at the situation and thinking he is off course. And Paul was afraid. And he was afraid for his life. And he was afraid that, that this chaotic scene would end in death and it would end in the end of, of all of their lives. And, and so this is why he says in verse 21, men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. And don't picture him like he's standing there calmly addressing the men. This is a chaotic scene. And so the Lord knows that Paul needs to be reminded of this, that God put them in this situation and that God was still in control of his plans and his promises, and they hadn't changed. Paul needed to be reminded that all hope of being saved had not been abandoned. And so God, you'll see, sends an angel with this message for Paul in verse 24. And how does the message begin? Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. 
And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. And so God is testing and strengthening Paul's faith. And he can stand now because the angel of the Lord came to him and told him this message. He can stand before the men uh, and maybe even women that are on that ship with him. And even though they didn't listen to his advice, he can urge them to take heart because God had once again come to him and given him his word. And you can see the strengthening of his faith here as he says it like this. The angel that stood before me was an angel of the God, and he says, to whom I belong and whom I worship. He, he could have said the angel of the God who is over all these things, who is sovereign, who, who controls the waves and the, sins and, uh, and, and the seas and, and overcomes all of creation. He, he could have just looked at the omnipotence of God over everything, and he could have addressed that, but that's not what he does. He comes to them, and, and the Lord strengthens him in his, in his faith, and when he speaks to them, he says, I come to you, and I urge you, because this is the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. His faith is personal and he's trusting in God. And so he says, take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. And so this shipwreck is for Paul to be strengthened to carry out his mission. And we need to be reminded of God's promises and power as well, beloved. When things are going difficult, we may not have an angel of God come to us and remind us of God's promise, but what has he given us? He's given us his word. He's given us his word so that we might read it and meditate on it, and we might always be reminded in the midst of every circumstance of our life that we need not fear because God is in control. We may be knocked back on our heels, but God is ever-present before us and is at the helm, and he is leading and directing the course of history, and we will be victorious. But the fact of the matter is God hadn't abandoned Paul. But Paul feared that he had. And God says, straighten up, Paul. Be strong in the faith and remember that God is at work building you up. Romans 5 says, Romans 5, Paul writes this. Verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame 
because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul had to learn that, beloved, and he did. Now, why did Paul need to, at this moment, learn that? And that is secondly, and this will be much more short. God sends this storm so that he might use his servant Paul, now strengthened in the faith, for the purpose of bearing witness to others of God's power to save. God strengthens Paul's faith so that Paul may be a witness to others of God's power to save. That is some of the reasons why we suffer, beloved. That the world might look at us and that they might see a hope and an endurance that surpasses anything in this world. We may go through terrible things in life that God has decreed for us, and we may go through them, and God will strengthen us through them so that at the end and during that trial, those who are lost and who feel like they are abandoned may be able to see in us a hope that endures, something that is that is eternal, something that is powerful, something that is uh, looking to a, a future glory that is secure. God puts us in those situations, and he, and he put Paul in it for this purpose. When people look at us in the midst of suffering, they shouldn't see desperate and hysterical people. They should see Christ in us. And you can see this in Paul's plea to them as well, that God set him up for this. Because in verse 22, again, it says, I urge you to take heart, and he tells them, for there will be no life, there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. You will be saved. You will be Saved, And he continues to remind them of this as things continue to get worse. He sits down with them. He encourages them. He eats with them, all of them, reminding them that God is going to deliver them. And so it is, as Paul exhorts them to trust in God, that they are safely brought to land. And that land is Malta. Now, I'll close with this. We don't know whether any of those on board were ultimately spiritually saved. We don't know if the gospel seed that's, that Paul planted was sprouted. 
but Paul was able to plant it and he was able to give glory to God for the salvation from this shipwreck. And he will be enabled to do more on the island of Malta that God brings them to land on. And so this account, Dennis Johnson in his commentary says, it's a prime example of God's power to disperse the seed of his word through the sorrows of his sowers. All these miseries advanced Paul's gospel mission. The afflictions that befell the apostle along the way were integral to the divine plan of God. The bearers of God's word may be afflicted and restricted, but the message itself goes forward unchained, unrestrained, and without hindrance, even through suffering. Even through suffering. That may be the case for you and I, beloved. That may be the case for you and I. But God will strengthen your faith, and as he does, he will also put you in a position to bear witness, to plant the seed of the gospel into the hearts of those who suffer without hope. Listen, listen. we suffer, but we suffer with hope. The world suffers, but the world suffers without hope. Isn't that true? We suffer with the hope of glory to come. The world suffers not with the hope of glory to come, but the world suffers with the realization, not realizing, that what awaits them after they die is an eternal suffering that comes with the wrath of God that will have no end. Do you understand their condition? Do you understand that the world is living in such a way where they have no hope in this life? Do you wonder why people are looking to find some kind of identity in the world? Why there are people that are so desperate to look for some kind of hope and purpose in this life that one man says he's now a woman and one woman starts to say that she's a man and then you have people saying that I am all kinds of sexual orientations and you have people creating identities from them, for themselves that are contrary to what God has said and the reason that the world is falling deeper and deeper into this chaotic mindset is because the world has no hope. This is all they have, beloved. We have a hope that is secure, and we are to offer that hope in Christ to the world. And that hope that we have in Christ to be delivered from the wrath of God and to be identified in Christ, it belongs to those who repent of their sin, turn to Christ for salvation, and place their faith in him alone as savior. It's offered to everyone who believes. And so we need to be reminded of that faith so that and strengthened in it 
so that we might proclaim it to others. And sometimes that comes through suffering, as it did with Paul. But at the end of the day, God will bring all those who belong to him safely to heaven. They were saved physically. I don't know if they were saved spiritually, but God brings his own safely through. And how do we know that? We know that because of what Christ has done for us on the cross, right? We know that because Christ lived and he died and he gave his life as a ransom. He broke his body. He shed his blood so that we might be received into his family. And so that's why we celebrate the Lord's table uh, this morning. Uh, Rory, if you'll come up to, the, uh, to play for us. So I want to invite you, if you're here with us, and if you have placed your faith in Christ and you've trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins and, and you belong to him, as Paul says, and you worship him, I want to invite you to, you can celebrate the Lord's table. But if you have not come to know Christ as your Savior, we would ask you that you would not come to receive the elements because you haven't yet hoped in him. Place your hope in him, trust in him, believe on Christ that he is the Redeemer, and then his body and his blood also belong to you. But until you do that, it's, it's not for you because you're still under judgment. Today can be that day if you will come in faith and repentance and believe. But for us, beloved, we eat and we drink knowing that Christ is with us and that he will do what he promised. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on the elements, and then you can come up the row and receive it. Go sit down, and we will partake together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word again, and we thank you for your faithfulness. Um, we thank you for the way that you worked in, in Paul's life um, to continue to strengthen his faith and then to use him for your glory to spread the hope of the gospel. And now, Father, as we come uh, to remember Christ our Savior by the uh, bread and the, and the juice that is before us, to remember that he broke his body on our behalf and paid the price that we deserved and he shed his blood that we might have our sins washed and we might be white as snow. Uh, we pray that you would bless this to our body and that we would remember that our hope is in you and you alone, Lord Jesus, and that because of that, we know that you will bring us safely through. Uh, may you bless this communion in your name, Jesus. Amen.